Well, I'd like to have you turn with me, if you will, to Proverbs 14 and verse 34. I kind of introduced this during the week uh, and last week while we were planning on having a service on the 4th of July. And uh, the verse itself serves as really a target of our lives as not only believers in Jesus Christ, but as citizens of, of the United States of America. And to establish for us this evening the strong spiritual and scriptural foundation that this nation has had from its beginning. And so when it says in Proverbs 14.34, righteousness exalteth a nation, it isn't just speaking about Israel, though it is speaking to Israel as much as any nation. But it is clear that this is about every nation, that righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. I'd like to read to you a prayer, and I'll tell you where this prayer comes from and what it's meaning is all about and what it was uh, given for. But here is the prayer. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, high and mighty King of kings and Lord of lords, who dost from thy throne behold all the dwellers on earth and reignest with power supreme and uncontrolled over all the kingdoms, empires, and governments. Look down in mercy, we beseech thee, on these our American states who have fled to thee from the rod of the oppressor and thrown themselves on thy gracious protection, desiring to be henceforth dependent only on thee. To thee have they appealed for the righteousness of their cause. To thee do they now look up for that countenance and support which thou alone canst give. Take them therefore, Heavenly Father, under thy nurturing care. Give them wisdom and counsel and valor in the field. Defeat the malicious designs of our cruel adversaries. Convince them of the unrighteousness of their cause and if they persist in their sanguinary purposes of own unerring justice, sounding in their hearts, constrain them to drop the weapons of war from their unnerved hands in the day of battle. Be thou present, O God of wisdom, and direct the counsels of this honorable assembly. Enable them to settle things on the best and surest foundation that the scene of blood may be speedily closed, that order, harmony, and peace may be effectually restored, and truth and justice, religion and piety prevail and flourish amongst the people. Preserve the health of their bodies and vigor of their minds, 
showered down on them and the millions they here represent such temporal blessings as thou seest expedient for them in this world and crown them with everlasting glory in the world to come. All this we ask in the name and through the merits of Jesus Christ, thy Son and our Savior. Amen. This was no ordinary prayer for just any ordinary event or meeting. This was the extemporaneous, unrehearsed prayer from the heart of the Reverend Jacob Duchesne, the rector of Christ Church in Philadelphia, who was summoned to lead the opening prayers for the first Congress of the United States on September the 7th, 1774, the day Congress met to address concerns after the recent British attack on Boston. But before he prayed, the Reverend Duche read all of Psalm 35, which I am not going to do, but I'm going to read nine verses of it. And when that was done, reading Psalm 35, all 28 verses, giving forth this prayer from his heart at this Congress, that John Adams, who would later become the second president of the United States, stated in a letter to his wife concerning the opening of that Congress, he wrote, and I quote, I never saw a greater effect upon an audience. It seemed as if heaven had ordained that psalm to be read on the morning. Now the first nine verses give indication of the seriousness of the plea before God, much like David's cry of desperation for God to respond on his behalf toward his enemies. When he says in Psalm 35 verse 1, plead my cause, O Lord, with them that strive with me. Fight against them that fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and stand up for mine help. Draw out also the spear and stop the way against them that persecute me. Say unto my soul, I am thy salvation. Let them be confounded and put to shame that seek after my soul. Let them be turned back and brought to confusion that devise my hurt. Let them be as chaff before the wind, and let the angel of the Lord chase them. Let their way be dark and slippery, and let the angel of the Lord persecute them. For without cause have they hid for me their net in a pit, which without cause they have digged for my soul. Let destruction come upon him at unawares, and let his net that he has hid catch himself. Into that very destruction let him fall, and my soul shall be joyful 
in the Lord. It shall rejoice in his salvation. The psalm and the prayer of Reverend Duchesne sound very similar, don't they? From the same heart crying out for freedom. How much of this rich history has been preserved and taught to the present wayward generation? And I didn't really know how, how else to name it but a wayward generation today. All we have to do is look at the news, to look at the demonstrations that have been going on since President Trump was inaugurated, and rightfully chosen, and elected as president. And I'm stating this only from the standpoint that if we look at the Bible and look at the scriptures very clearly, it tells us that every king and every president, every leader of any nation is there because God has placed him there. But there is a wayward generation that has lost all touch with what this nation has been through from its beginnings. And so to answer the question, how much of this rich history has been preserved and taught to the present wayward generation? Obviously, not much of it, if any. In fact, historical revisionists have done their lower level best to hinder, to stifle, and to suppress as much of this truth as possible, tarnishing the reputation of the founding fathers many of them devoted Christians, and continually attempt with all their power, and I use this quote purposely, they continually attempt with all their power to fundamentally change the foundations of a nation established on the Judeo-Christian principles that are contained in the Word of God. And they've done quite a job in doing that over the last 50 years or so. When the Bible was taken out of the schools, the name of God in some places cannot be even be spoken, the name of Christ is stifled while some teachers would have Muhammad and Islam be presented. Psalm 11, verse 3, of course, says, If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? I know that I've spoken on this verse many times. And in fact, there is something that the righteous can do, and we'll get to that soon enough. But think about the very fact that we were given foundations. But what have we done with them as a nation? In 1799, Jedediah Morse, the father of Samuel Morse, the inventor of the telegraph and of the Morse code, his father, Jedediah, preached a sermon based on this text, Psalm 11, verse 3. After he had become highly alarmed 
at how far the clergy in Boston had moved away from the scriptures and from biblical orthodoxy, having been influenced by European philosophical rationalism. So now, if you look at 1799, you realize that it hasn't been about 150 years, it's been over 200 years that this philosophy that preachers and, and ministers began to embrace philosophy rather than the Word of God has been taking place. And so in this particular sermon, Jedediah Moore said this. He said, and I quote, our dangers are two kinds. He said, those which affect our religion. Now, when they use the word religion, as even Reverend Duchesne used in his prayer, the word religion was used to specify the Christian faith, to specify scriptural Christian faith. So he says, our dangers are two kinds, those which affect our religion and those which affect our government. They are, however, so closely allied that they cannot, with propriety, be separated. The foundations which support the interest of Christianity are also necessary to support a free and equal government like our own. To the kindly influence of Christianity, we owe that great, or that degree, I should say, of civil freedom. Let me read it again. To the kindly influence of Christianity, we owe that degree of civil freedom and political and social happiness which mankind now enjoys. In proportion, as the genuine effects of Christianity are diminished in any nation, either through unbelief or the corruption of its doctrine or the neglect of its institutions, in the same proportion will the people of that nation recede from the blessings of genuine freedom and approximate the miseries of complete despotism. I hold this to be a truth confirmed by experience. If so, it follows that all efforts made to destroy the foundations of our holy religion ultimately tend to the subversion also of our political freedom and happiness. And then he closes this portion of his speech, or actually his, his, his sermon, by saying, whenever the pillars of Christianity shall be overthrown, our present Republican forms of government and all the blessings which flow from them must fall with them." End quote. In 1799, Jedediah Morse foresaw the problems that we are having in this country today. Because the foundations upon which this country was founded have been so maligned, so attacked, that it is and has affected our government to the point that we see it in a complete uncivil civil war like we haven't had since the time of Lincoln. 
Now the mention of republic in, in, in Morse's sermon has nothing to do with a political party, but refers to a form of government in which elected individuals represent the citizen body and exercise power according to the rule of law under a constitution, including separation of powers with an elected head of state. This form of government is referred to as a constitutional republic or a representative democracy. But even that is being questioned and has been over the last 10 years or so. You know, it's quite sad to hear the man on the street interviews. Have you ever heard some of those man on the street interviews conducted by reporters who ask people, especially young people like the ones that they, I saw celebrating at a beach, you know, on, on, on the 4th of July, or maybe it was during spring break, which was kind of crazy anyway. But they get, in, they get asked these questions. And the question that was asked during this one particular interview was, why, why, why do we celebrate the 4th of July? And what, what does this day mean to the American people? And uh, what, what was sad to hear was that some of them didn't even know what it was about. And these are not just teenagers, but young, young adults in their 20s. They would ask him about the date 1776, and it was mentioned in one, to one person, and they got blank looks, you know, 1776. And then somebody answered in the background, isn't that when Columbus discovered America? Because doesn't it, doesn't it, isn't it supposed to rhyme, you know, like in 1776, you know, Columbus crossed the ocean blue? No, that's 1492. <laughs> that rhymes, but not 1776. All in all, it's still really sad because there were more wrong answers than there were right answers. <clears throat> and even knowing why this day is important is something that we as a nation have borrowed from the history of the children of Israel. I want to take, uh, for example, the Feast of Purim. The Feast of Purim, it's spelled P-U-R-I-M. Most Americans say Purim, but it's Purim. Because if a Jew hears you say Purim, they say, oh, it's Purim. I hope you all know what the Feast of Purim is and where it's found. It's found for us in the scriptures in the book of Esther. The joyous festival of Purim, celebrated every year on the 14th of the Hebrew month of Adar, which is late winter, early spring, commemorates the salvation of the Jewish people in ancient Persia, which is modern-day Iran, from a high-ranking official who was named, uh, whose name was Haman, or we say Haman, but it was Haman, whose plot was, and by the way, Haman was a forerunner of Adolf Hitler, just to let you know. And I mention that because it seems so easy for some people today to throw around the words Nazi and 
Gestapo and concentration camps and Holocaust and Hitler without any sense of reason. But just to stir. Social media to stir the normal media. But how can that be? If you study history, you realize there's no comparison. Being a Jew, it bothers me to hear those words. Do you all understand? It's just so easy on, on some news show to use those terms. Okay, I got it out. But the festival of Purim commemorates that salvation of the Jewish people. Esther, of course, was the wife of King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes. And Haman was appointed by Ahasuerus to the second position in all of the land. But he was a hater of the Jews. He hated them with a passion. And he had a plot. And the plot was found in Esther 3, verse 13, is found there. And I'll read the plot. It's the second sentence, or the second part of the sentence, to destroy, to kill, and to cause to perish all Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, even upon the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. That was his plot. I bring up the book of Esther for a couple of reasons. First, there are some powerful verses that are foundational to the comparative struggle of two nations for existence and for freedom. Two nations. The nation and people of Israel and the nation and people of the United States. Bear with me. Take, for instance, the exchange between Mordecai, Esther's uncle, and Esther herself, who was the queen married, as I said, to the Persian king Ahasuerus, concerning Haman's plot and his influence on the king. If you go to the next chapter, Esther 4, verses 13 through 17, listen to this exchange. And listen carefully to the words. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, if you say nothing to your husband the king, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. Even though the name of God is not mentioned in the book of Esther, one thing is clear. Mordecai knew that God was going to deliver and rescue the Jewish people some way. But this is what he says to Esther. If 
thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time. You say nothing. Then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the, to the kingdom for such a time as this? For such a time as this, Esther. And then Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer. Go, gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast ye for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. Now these phrases, especially the last one, if I perish, I perish, remind me of men like Nathan Hale, a school teacher when the Revolutionary War broke out in April of 1775 and spurred on by a friend's letter not only to serve, and I quote, a glorious country and a happy constitution, but also the honor of our God soon did uh, Hale join the fight for independence. And he became what some consider to be America's first spy. The British captured him after a special mission for General George Washington, a mission of gathering information behind enemy lines. But before he was hanged on September 22, 1776, he made a short speech that ended with those famous inspiring words that every American should know, but most don't. And the words are, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. You see, it has been said that freedom is never free. Freedom is never free. A former Associate Justice to the Supreme Court, Felix Frankfurter, is quoted as saying, we have enjoyed so much freedom for so long that we are perhaps in danger of forgetting how much blood it cost to establish the Bill of Rights. How right he was. Now the Jewish people have not forgotten. They have not forgotten to celebrate Purim and that for all the right reasons. We were in Israel a few years ago when <clears throat> the, uh, the festival of Purim was, was taking place and we were driving through the city of Jerusalem and all these people were wearing, I mean, they, they dress up. I mean, they, it's, 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 it's not Halloween, it's not, you know, but they, they, but they dress up in costumes, the little kids, even the older guys, and, you know, they, uh, because they're reenacting in, in, in some way, Haman being the you know, the villain and, and Esther and Mordecai and all of that. 
And it's gotten to the point where, you know, now the more liberal Jews, they, you know, they dress in all kinds of other costumes. Okay. But the fact of the matter is, the people haven't forgotten. They haven't forgotten what Purim represents, what it means, what it's all about. You could go to every Jew in the city of Tel Aviv or in the city of, of, of Jerusalem or up in the, in the area of Tiberias and, and you could go and, and do the man on the street interview and everyone will tell you exactly why they're celebrating Purim. Every one of them. And they would probably take you to chapter and verse. And here's why they know. In Esther 9, verses 24 through 28, it says, Because Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had devised against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast poor, that is, the lot. Poor is, is, is actually a, a um, Persian word for lots. The casting of lots. That's why it's called Purim. Haman cast lots to decide what day he was going to bring about this plot against the Jews. It, and had cast Pur, that is the lot, to consume them and to destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letters that his wicked device, which he devised against the Jews, should return upon his own head upon the very head of Haman himself. And that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. The gallows that Haman had built specifically for Mordecai. And the Jews. And wherefore they called these days Purim after the name of Pur. Therefore, for all the words of this letter and of that which they had seen concerning this matter and which had come unto them, the Jews ordained and took upon them and upon their seed and upon all such as joined themselves unto them. Because when you read the book of Esther, you realize that during this time that many people became Jews. They, 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 they were just, you know, they, want, they wanted to know the God of Israel. So they, all such as joined themselves unto them, so as it should not fail that they would keep these two days. Notice, according to their writing and according to their appointed time, every year. And guess what? It still goes on today. And that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city and that these days of Purim should not fail from among the Jews, nor the memorial of them perish from their seed. This is why they remember. And this is why they continue to celebrate those two days every year at the same time. And everyone knows why. There's no doubt. Now, for those who may not know, <coughs> excuse me, for those who may not know, the resolution for independence 
in the United States of America. The resolution for independence was passed on July the 2nd. That's when it was passed. You could have started celebrating two days ago, in other words. Which took place, by the way, the resolution for independence took place during the Second Continental Congress at Independence Hall in Philadelphia. And by the way, the wording of the Declaration of Independence was approved on July the 4th, and that's the reason why we celebrate it on the 4th. But the Declaration announced that the 13 American colonies then at war with the Kingdom of Great Britain would regard themselves as 13 independent sovereign states no longer under British rule. The following day, July the 3rd, John Adams again wrote a letter to his wife. I mean, these guys wrote letters constantly to each other. I have to mention that. Because we began with, uh, yeah, they didn't, have, uh, they didn't have phones, you know, that they could text. They couldn't text. So he wrote another letter to his wife, reflecting what he had shared concerning the importance of that day at the Congress, or at the, uh, the uh, Continental Congress. And this is what he wrote to his wife. And listen carefully. He said, the second day of July, 1776, he was only off by two days. The second day of July, 1776, will be the most memorable epoch in the history of America. I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations. I didn't know they had any then. <laughs> Maybe they did. From one end of this continent, listen, this was just a letter from him to his wife. He says, from one end of the continent to the other, from this time forward forever. You will think me, he says, you will think me transported with enthusiasm, which is kind of the 18th century way of saying, you might think me kind of crazy here, little nuts, little nutso. You will think me transported with enthusiasm, but I am not. I am well aware, listen to what he says, I am well aware of the toil and blood and treasure that it will cost to maintain this declaration and support and defend these states. Yet through all the gloom, I can see the rays of ravishing light and glory. I can see that the end is worth more than all the means, that posterity will triumph in the day's transaction, even though we may regret it, which I trust in God, we shall not." What a letter. But it reflects the importance of remembering what that day was all about in declaring independence from an aggressive 
and highly oppressive government. Freedom is not free. As the Jewish people have not forgotten the immense sacrifice of toil and blood and treasure that was expended over thousands of years for them to, to once again be in their homeland, so must we as Americans never forget what it took for us to be the most powerful and wealthiest nation in recorded history. It should be celebrated, but we need to know why. It should be celebrated as we have today, but it should be celebrated with humility first and with reverence toward God first and with wisdom and that wisdom from the Word of God. And don't think that it is one man or one president that is causing the downfall of the United States in the eyes of many people in this country and even in the world today. It isn't. The government continues to function, albeit imperfect because it is run by imperfect men. But what does it matter anyway, with much of the world having rejected the one true God anyway, the God of creation anyway, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Anyway, the vitriol, I'm going to become a thesaurus now. Maybe you don't understand the word vitriol, but let me give you a few similarities to that word. Venom, bile, bitterness, sarcasm, hatred. The vitriol that is being spewed in our nation today toward one person and now his family and his administration is indicative of how quickly and how easily a nation can lose its moral standing when its one solid foundation has been replaced with sand. You remove the Word of God. You remove the commandments of God. You remove the name of Christ, and this is what happens. Consider, if you will, the dumbing down of America. Consider the dishonest and subjective news coverage of all events, major and minor. Some minor events become major ones just because of the news media today. But most importantly, consider the relationship that the United States of America has had with the modern state of Israel. Consider that. This nation, our nation, was raised up without any question, and I say this without repentance, 
This nation was raised up without any question, in large part, to bring the Jewish people back into the Promised Land. Pure and simple. And may I say, to bring them into the Promised Land for bringing history to a close. Because we're that close to the coming of Jesus Christ. When you read Genesis 12, verse 3, and it says, And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. No other nation, there have been other nations that have supported Israel, don't get me wrong, but no other nation has been like the nation that has supported them, especially at the very onset of the modern state of Israel in, in May of 1948, like the United States of America. No other nation has done what we have done for them. And in answer to the question, is the United States of America in Scripture and more specifically in prophecy, I've dealt with this particular question uh, when we were studying the book of Ezekiel, chapter 38, and dealing with uh, the issues of the Gog-Magog war and the mention of the, uh, the sons of Tarshish and uh, the connection that that may have to the United States, to Britain, to France, to Spain, and to others. But in answer to that question, is the United States in Scripture and more specifically in prophecy, I'm going to just answer the question this way. Yes, it is, but not by name. Yes, it is, but not by name. It is by presence and by influence. And this is unmistakable when you read God's, about God's hand bringing Israel into the land. The Lord has used us in that respect. And even more recently, when uh, President Trump uh, declared that Jerusalem is truly the capital of, of the, the, the state of Israel, uh, that, that said a lot in itself. And what said even more was, was the criticisms uh, when most people should have realized the importance of it. All there was was criticism and that by, by the very uh, press as well as the opposition, the, uh, the opposing uh, uh, party that will not support him in any way. That is the president. But we have been in scripture at least by presence and by influence. Because not only were we chosen by God to preserve and to protect the people that God chose to be his own, and by the way, the people through whom the Savior came, that's an important aspect about this all. We were chosen as a vessel for the higher purpose of taking the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the whole world. 
and it continues today. Even in modern technology, even with the internet, even with uh, radio, and radio is not modern technology anymore, but it still continues uh, to send the message of the gospel into areas like Saudi Arabia, into, into Iran, into Iraq, into Afghanistan, into other nations, Egypt. And many people who were at one time uh, Muslim, are, many of them are coming to the Lord. In many countries, this, revelation, this revolution, if, if I may, is taking place. Another revolution started and continued by God himself. But the United States of America, after its birth and with the freedoms that we had, the freedoms to worship, the Lord, to proclaim the name of the Lord, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the land because of the First Amendment of the Constitution. Many missionaries were raised up in the United States of America, going to every part of the world, every corner of the world. And we can say almost 100% now that the gospel has been preached in every nation, in every language, to every tribe, and to every tongue. And so when you read in Matthew 24, verses 7 through 14, the words, for nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, I read these to say this is where we are today. And it's not the World Cup even though we're all interested in the World Cup, right? And we're all saddened, you know, because we weren't in it and Mexico lost and all of our favorites. Nations shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my namesake, and then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And by the way, this is, this is giving us an understanding that in the last days, there, it's, even in this country, there's going to be this, this wrestling between Christian and Christian, or so-called Christian and Christian. And many false prophets shall arise. That's already happening. It's been happening for a while. And they shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And notice verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. So this is what I mean by the end of history coming. And we've had the opportunity to be used by God to bring this about in our support to the state of Israel and to the very fact that now the land of Israel is once again in the news, it is once again in the spotlight, it is once again at the epicenter of all nations. But sadly, we are seeing the words of the Apostle Paul coming into fruition, 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth 
and shall be turned unto fables. And I pray that that will never happen in this place, that the word of God will continue to go forth, that we can continue to love the word of God as we do and read it and study it and live by it and, and live for it and preach it and, 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 and teach it and announce it and, and proclaim it and declare it. Because the word of God is still alive and sharper than any two-edged sword, still to this day. And when the word of God and the spirit of God are together, that's power that no man and no principality or power or ruler of darkness or spiritual wickedness in high places can do anything about. Amen? That's the word of God. And so we have something that we need to do until the day of Christ, and that is we need to pray and continue to pray for our country. And I know that I closed the other day with this passage, if my people, 2 Chronicles 7, 14, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. May the Lord not only bless once again the United States of America, but may the Lord have mercy on the United States of America. We need God's mercies. We're a land so far, in many respects, so far from God, but we're still here. And until the day that he takes us home, we have that responsibility for our country because every nation shall stand before God.